to leave it all in the hands of your Father in heaven takes much grace, much help. But there is no greater place that we could take the cares of this world than to him and leave them there, knowing that he cares for us. I want you to open your Bible with me this morning to Psalm, Psalms 114. Psalm 114. If you have a heading over the psalm in your Bible, it may say something similar to mine. Mine says, The power of God in his deliverance of Israel. So, what we're going to consider this morning is the power of God in delivering his people out of Egypt. Then we're also going to equate that to the power of God in delivering his people out of sin and bondage. So would you read this psalm with me? When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams? O little hills, like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. Let's pray. Father, we come again to your word this morning, asking that you would bless it to our understanding, and that your spirit would come alongside of us and be our teacher. We ask it for Christ's sake, and in his name, amen. In the preface to the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 1, just before God gives the people the commands with which they were to live under and by keeping them would declare themselves to be his people before he gave them those commands on the mountain to Moses. This is what he says. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So his giving them commandments was based upon the fact that he had redeemed them. He shares that with them just prior to making his law known. So this is a reminder for us that the foundation upon which the commands were given was the fact that God had redeemed a people. You might remember when he first called Moses to go to Pharaoh... He told Moses to go to Pharaoh and make this declaration. Let my people go. Do you remember the last part of that? Let my people go so they may serve me. We need to understand salvation rightly. It is indeed freedom, but it is freedom to serve. It's not a freedom 
with no boundaries. It's not a freedom with no law. It's a freedom to serve within the boundaries that God has set forth. And that's exactly the illustration and example of the exodus out of Egypt. God heard their cries because he had been merciful to them. He heard them and then began to act on their behalf. And even the crying of the people was according to God's mercy. They were just asking God to continue to be true to the covenant that he had made and to the the knowledge that they had that one day, someday, they would be delivered from slavery and bondage. So the equation that I want to make this morning as we go through this psalm together, we're going to consider it historically. We're going to marvel at the wonder of God and the display of power that God put forth in bringing a people out of such great bondage. And you think of the Pharaoh, the most powerful man at this point in time, had an expansive kingdom. Every ability was his to keep this people constrained. Every ability was his to lay upon them hard burden. And he had done that. And he had increased the burden upon them because he thought they were too idle in wanting to go and serve the Lord. And so the correlation that we're going to make between Israel and ourselves, Egypt in the scriptures represents the bondage of sin. It represents everything that defined us before God saved us in Christ. And so, two thoughts, or two words, from two different men concerning this psalm, to kind of set it in its right context for us, even as we consider it in history, and then as we make application of it. Matthew Henry says this of this psalm. He says, in considering this song, we must acknowledge God's power and goodness in what he did for Israel. Even while we apply it to the much greater work of our redemption by Christ and encouraging ourselves and others to trust God in the greatest of straits. And then Martin Luther, also commenting on this psalm, he says, we use this psalm to give thanks unto Christ who delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, God's own dear son, and has led us forth into eternal life. Now I wanna be quick to let you know that I'm not just taking the liberty to turn this into a psalm about our salvation. The scriptures do that. Especially when we consider the last verse of this psalm, we're going to later go into the New Testament and let Paul begin to interpret and comment on these thoughts. And we'll see that this is exactly where he's taking us and how we should consider this in that way. As you look at these eight verses... I want you to see three things this morning. The power of God in deliverance. The purpose of God in delivering a people. And then the provision of God for that people. And we're going to see it in history in Egypt. The power, the purpose, and the provision. But I also want you to, in your own heart and mind, see those things at work in your life. The power of God, the purpose. Why did God save me? And then his great provision. 
So let's look at those in turn, beginning with the power of God in deliverance. I don't know how long it's been since you've read through Exodus. If it's been a while, go there, read the beginning chapters, and be reminded of the great power of God on display in bringing out a people. Is there any greater display of power in all of the Old Testament than the plagues that God leveled on Egypt because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart in not letting his people go? Remember the blood, the frogs, all of those kinds of things, the lice, the sores, the darkness, and then finally the death of the firstborn? We read those things, but we need to be reminded that those things actually happened. This is not fantasy. This is not a child's story. And this is the reminding of this psalm. Just look at the first part of this verse. When Israel went out of Egypt... Israel here is representative of an enslaved people with no strength whatsoever. All they could do was cry for God to help them. Egypt, on the other hand, was representative of great, vast power. And they had exercised that great and vast power to constrain this growing but yet in comparison, small number of people according to themselves. I want you to see yourself in this first verse. If you belong to Christ, I want you to see that what was true of Israel and Egypt was true of you in sin. And I don't want to be Dishonoring to the word of God here, certainly that's not my intent. But I want you to read this in your own heart and mind and insert your name there. Put your name in the place of Israel. When you've come out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language, God has worked a miracle in your life to free you from the power of sin. Paul tells the Romans that they were enslaved to sin. He tells the Ephesians that they were dead in sin. And while he tells both the Romans and the Ephesians, he's telling us the same things. And we would have forever remained enslaved in the sin that characterized us if the Lord had not intervened if he had not acted according to his mercy. Notice how the, notice how the psalm narrows. It begins with Israel, it begin, then narrows down to Jacob, and then it narrows down again to Judah. Certainly by doing that, the attention is being drawn by the psalmist and by the Spirit of God who inspired this psalm. I think the attention is being drawn down to the person of Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
So we see somewhat of the power on display of God. We're reminded of all that God did in humbling his own creation. Notice the question. We're going to come back to verse 2, but notice the question of the fifth verse. It's almost as if the sea and the Jordan are being mocked. By, ask, by being asked the question, what ails you? Or to put it in plain language, what has happened to you, great sea? What has happened to you, Jordan, that you turned back? Something has interrupted your normal course. And, of course, we know that that something was the power of God on display. And so the same question could be asked to the enslavement and captivity of sin. What has happened to your power? What has happened to the power of the grave? What has happened to the power of death? What ails you, O death? We could ask it in that way. Or ask it as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? What has happened to you? But then the answer is also supplied in verse 7. What happened to them was the presence of the Lord. What you'll notice in this psalm is everything is dependent upon and happening according to the presence of the Lord. So we covered the first point quickly to get to the second point, and that is what is the purpose? What is the purpose of God in delivering a people? And that's a good question for you to meditate upon this morning. Why did God save me? Why did he make his goodness known to me in Christ? Here's how the psalm answers the question. Verse 2 says, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. I want you to notice two words in that second verse, sanctuary and dominion. The sanctuary refers to the presence of God or the holiness of God. Throughout the Old Covenant, we see that God dwelt among his people both in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. So to say that Judah became his sanctuary is a way of saying that the people he redeemed became holiness unto the Lord. But that's not all. The second word is his dominion. Israel became his dominion. This is a word for kingdom. This is the reminder that God saved the people out of Egypt to reign over them as king. To give them his law. And his law would be the rule of their existence. And by keeping this law or by breaking this law, they would rise or they would fall. And so that's the history of that. But how do we bring this over into the correlation of our own spiritual exodus? We can say it in this way. God has saved us and he has a purpose in saving us so that we will become his holy people. Isn't that the way Peter interprets this in 1 Peter chapter 2? He says, now you're a holy nation. You once were not a people, but now you are a people in the Lord. But he has also saved us to exercise his dominion over us, his power. We are in every way to think of our being under the authority of the Lord, and he is ruling over his own 
theocracy. He alone is ruling and reigning. And then when we combine these things together, the great power of God on display and the purpose for it all, what we see there is what he claims as his own and makes holy through his own presence being with them, dwelling with them in holiness, he then has a right to declare his dominion over. So is it any wonder why before God gives them a command or the commands in Exodus 20, he reminds them of his own work to free them from bondage and then he declares over them a law to follow. Sometimes we forget that we have been saved for this purpose. We bask in the freedom and granted where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If the son has set you free, you are free indeed. We glory in all of those truths, but we have to also attach to this. We are free only to serve the Lord. We have been freed so that we can, even as the Israelites in Egypt, let my people go so that they may serve me. In a sense, we have been let go from sin and bondage to sin to serve the Lord. We are under the dominion of God. We are ruled by him. Even in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, there are commands for Christians to follow. We are not antinomian, and what that means is we are not those who believe that there is no law for the Christian. We recognize we are no longer bound to keep the law to establish our own righteousness. The law has condemned us before God, but we have a law to keep. Jesus summarized the ten in two commandments, love God, love your neighbor. That is the ordinance that he has placed over us. That's the dominion in which we live under. He has saved us for this purpose. So we've seen the power of God on display. We've seen the purpose. What about the provision? Go all the way down with me to the eighth verse. Who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. David Dixon in his commentary on the Psalms says this, whomever the Lord redeems and sets on their way to heaven, he will provide whatsoever is necessary for their sustenance and comfort in the journey. You believe that, don't you? Sometimes the affairs of life begin to choke that reality out of us and we begin to question it. But over and over again, the Lord has shown under the old covenant to his people and even to us that he is indeed Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. I want you to, to go to two places with me. The first being Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, and begin reading there in verse 1 with me. You remember this account. After the miraculous deliverance of a people, after showing his great power, it doesn't take long. 
for the Israelites to begin to grumble and to complain. And that's where we join in the story here in Exodus 17. All the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord. But on this journey that they had set out on, we're told, there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people began to contend with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock, with thirst? We don't often make this equation, but it's one that we need to make. Once we have been saved by the power of God, to doubt his provision for us is nothing more than what the grumblers are doing here. We try not to carry that over. But when a Christian begins to doubt the provision of God, and let me be very clear. Oftentimes, the provision of God is grace to get you through the situation, not an alleviation of the situation altogether. That's where we've become tainted by too much of what we call the prosperity gospel, right? God always makes provision, and very often that provision is to give grace and mercy to see you through it, even though it may end in your or my physical death. But because God is full of mercy, very often it pleases him in the temporal sphere of life to provide what we need. And we have great stories throughout history of how God has done that. And they're encouraging to us, and rightly so. But we, it ought not be cause for us to cast headlong into despair when we go to the mailbox and there's not a mysterious check there to meet our financial need. Or any other example that you want to apply to that. God may be supplying to you grace to get through that situation and in the meantime teach you numerous lessons about his faithfulness, the value of patience, the value of perseverance. And so let's go back to Exodus 17. Moses is asking, why are you contending with me? Why are you tempting the Lord? And the people thirsted for water and they complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us with our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cries out to the Lord and says, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. They're ready to kill me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel Take in your hand your rod, the same rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, so he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? Or not? What a question. <laughs> Referencing Psalm 114 that we've just read. 
the sea, the river, and the mountains, there was no question that the Lord was among the people of God. They recognized it, the creation, by trembling before God. That was verse 7. You remember when the Lord gave his commands to Moses on the mountain, the mountain shook and quaked, trembled before God. But here, this people that have been the great recipients of such a great deliverance and have seen with their own eyes the power of God on display, ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? We see the fickleness of a physically redeemed people. God help us not to display the fickleness of a spiritually redeemed people. I want you to look back with me at Psalm 114 for just a moment. And then we're going to move over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because I want you to see this out of the pattern of the psalm before we move forward. Verse 1, the power of God on display, right? Verse 2, the purpose, so the people would become a sanctuary and have his dominion exercised over them. And then in verses 3 through 7, we have this language that shows us how the Lord acted upon his own creation, which results in verse 7, as I just said, the trembling at the presence of the Lord and the presence of the God of Jacob. And then in verse 8, we've seen the provision of God turning the rock into a pool of water so a thirsty, grumbling people could drink. So now that we have all of that, again, fresh in our mind, would you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10? In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul begins to speak about the examples that are contained for the people of God in the Old Testament. Let's read a few verses there in verse 1. He says, Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. 
nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all things that happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear up. Now, the point that I want to make by coming here is the point that Paul makes, referring to the provision of God for the believer. He's acted for you in great power, freeing you from the bondage of sin. He has saved you with a purpose in mind so that you would be holy unto the Lord and so that you would be a person and a group of people, a church underneath his ordinance and his dominion. And then we have this great reminder of his provision and there is tremendous illustration in it. We read from Exodus 17, so I just want to remind you what we read there. The people complained. The remedy for their complaint was God said, Moses, take the rod, the same rod with which you parted the sea. Take it to the rock. And this time in Exodus 20, Exodus 17, different than Numbers 20, he said, strike the rock and water flowed. And the people drank. Isn't it interesting here that Paul, using this Old Testament example, says that that rock was Christ. The provision for a people. Remember the imagery. Moses, take your staff. What does the staff represent? The power of God. What did he do with that rod? He struck the rock. In this illustration, who is the rock? Christ. So when we put those things together, what Paul is saying, how he's interpreting these events under the old covenant, is a glorious example and illustration of the gospel in the context of God providing for his people. The power of God struck his own son, Christ. And what issued forth was not water to physically sustain a people, but was salvation. And sustaining power for that people. That rock was Christ. And if we follow the the thought of Paul here, And if you read this, it's hard to read it just jumping in the 10th chapter. If you were to read 1 Corinthians up to this point and really see the the flow of Paul's thinking and the reason he brings this out here, you would find that there is almost a, a begging of Paul. Don't do what they did. We read it. With most of these, God was not well pleased. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things became our examples. 
Then he gives us a listing of things. And this list is not an exhaustive list. None of the lists you find in the scriptures that contain gross or heinous sins are exhaustive lists. But these are the ones that our fallen humanity deals with most often. As God is making provision for us, and as he has, through crushing his own son. That's why we read Isaiah 53 this morning. The rod of God struck his own son, crushing and bruising him so that what would flow out is salvation. What would issue forth is redemption. And once we have come to God in faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, once he has given us this great salvation and we are there and we are spiritually being sustained by this continual flow out of the person of Christ. There is no bottom to the well of his provision. It was enough to save us initially. It's enough to save us all the way to the end. We read those things that Paul says, don't do this and don't do that. And then we get to verse 12. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. That's a dire warning. And the warning would go something like this. Don't just claim to have taken the provision of God in Christ. Don't just make an empty profession. Come to God in Christ through faith, taking possession of what he has given. That's the missing link. Old Covenant Israel saw great miraculous things This is also a difference in, in the Old and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant people were members of that covenant by family lineage, right? New Covenant, the membership is made up of those who by faith are in Christ. So as you consider your own salvation there this morning, the power of God in freeing you from sin the purpose to make you a holy nation, brick upon brick, stone upon stone, and then the great provision. Hear what Paul writes here in the 12th verse of 1 Corinthians 10. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no better use of your time on this Lord's day and to meditate and to think deeply of what he has done for you. That's what Psalm 114 is all about. Remembering. Remembering. It's found throughout the Psalms. It's found throughout the apostles preaching in the New Testament. Remembering what God had done. And as you remember, emphasize those specific points in your own thinking. What power of God was on display in my life? Drawing me out of the depth of my sin.
And what a great purpose. All stemming from his great provision. Initially and all the way to the end. Drink deeply from the well that has been provided for you in Christ Jesus. Scripture tells us you can come and drink there free of charge. If we continue reading just a bit and as, as I close, part of the provision extends into verse 13, reminding us of the faithfulness of God, not allowing us to be tempted beyond what we are able but with the temptation also makes a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In one way or another, God is going to provide for his own. Aren't you thankful to be numbered in that group? He will take care of you. It's that simple. Let's thank him for that. Father, we come... Today, we're thankful for this psalm. Lord, we've been reminded of the great power that you have put on display in the saving of sinners. Lord, we've been reminded also of the great purpose. And in that, Lord, we pray for grace and help that we might grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be holy as you are holy, that we would be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. And Lord, we thank you for making great provision for us. We thank you for continually sustaining us and giving us what we need. Lord, mature us in our understanding of how that provision comes. continue to, to dispense grace and mercy upon us. For we declare we are in great need of it. We pray you accomplish your purposes among us and we give you thanks and praise for Christ, in Christ's name. Amen.